And lighting candles that week was a struggle. And it feels weird to say that because I grew up in a from house. It was never even a question, you know, like get out of the shower if you're late, whatever, run quick, you know, light candles. Here I was, there was nothing stopping me from lighting candles except myself. I was mad. I was so broken. I was like, I'm too crushed. Is there a point where I'm too crushed? Like there's nothing left of me. And still that tiny action, I think that's where the ma'ar, that's where the illumination comes. Hello, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you for a quick favor. If you love Human and Holy and want to support us, can you go ahead and click the follow button on whatever platform you listen to your podcast? If you're already following, leave us a rating or a review. It means so much to me. It helps other people find the podcast. It's all around just really good stuff. So if you could take a quick second, hit the follow button, leave a rating, I would be so grateful. If you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast, or support Human and Holy financially in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. Today's episode is a story of loss and strength. Malky Ruddle shares how the idea of Kasis Lamar, an idea explained in Va'atatitzave, a mimer from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, has carried her through unimaginable circumstances. Malki is joyful, vibrant, wise. This is not a story of endless suffering. It is a story of hope, of empowerment, of the ability we each hold to take our painful circumstances and turn them into sources of light. I want to mention before we begin that this episode gives a detailed account of pregnancy loss and death. If for whatever reason you are sensitive to these topics at this time, please take care of yourself and consider skipping this episode for now. And now join me for Malki's story of Cassis Lamar, life's crushing challenges and the small ways we can turn them into sources of light. I'm so excited to have you here. You're such a shining light. Oh my goodness. You're, look at your Thank smile. You. So nice. <laughs> I'm just thrilled to be here. This is like bucket list kind of thing. Oh, I'm so happy. Thank you so much for being here. Kate, so tell us your name. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what you formally do and then tell us, you know, what you're into, what you're passionate about. Sure. So my name is Malky Ruddle. I am an Aussie girl through and through. And currently I'm a wife, I'm a mother, and I'm a shlucha to an area in Australia called Newcastle and the Central Coast. It's a beautiful East Coast part of Australia. And gosh, like I always have a hard time wrapping myself into <laughs> a few words. Like, where who are you? <laughs> who am I? Yeah, I sort of sometimes get stunned. Like, ah, uh, who am I? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's actually sort of, it's a good thing. There's lots of parts to me. So my husband and I have been here in Newcastle for three years. But before that, we used to travel around Australia with Chabad of Rara, which is an organization that services rural and regional Jews in Australia. So, you know, if you have really concentrated communities in Melbourne and Sydney, there's lots of Jews and lots going on, but then you have these sprinkling of Jews all over the place that don't have a community, they don't have a support system, and they don't necessarily have a connection to their Judaism. So for six years, we were on the road, yamim taivim, other times throughout the year, and it was just the most incredible experience. Crazy, amazing, inspiring, all the things. 
if you have seen the documentary Outback Rabbis, that's mm. me driving the truck. Nice. <laughs> and it was an amazing experience. But like as our family grew, we knew that eventually we would want to settle somewhere. And Newcastle was the spot that we chose. We had visited here many, many times over our travels with Rara. And here we are permanently. So it's a crazy ride. I look at my life and just think, is this me? Like, how did I get here? Like I said, I grew up in Australia. I didn't really know much about Shluchim. I had never been to a Chabad house out of a from community. I think I till I left home after I finished school. So I didn't really know much about Shluchus. And then I went to Sam and I was inspired and I saw what people do around the world and I was like, wow, could I do this? And then I met this amazing guy and I really liked him. <laughs> Hi, yes. And the only sticking point was that my husband, Yossi, spoiler alert, we got married, but he had a lot of shlichus experience and he was very firm that that's what he wanted to do. And I was this inspired, young, like idealistic human, but I was so worried. What happens if I commit to this and then it doesn't work out? What if I, like, as in, what if I can't do it? Like, I love the idea of shlichus, but what happens if I don't? Like my human being in me doesn't manage. And he was actually the one who was like, I know we've only known each other for two weeks, but you'd be the most amazing shlucha. <laughs> so <laughs> it was really him who gave me that extra push. And here we are on this crazy ride. So that's our shlucha story. That's how the Melbourne girl ended up in the middle of Newcastle. When we were looking for shlucha, and when we were discussing, you know, our life plans, whatever it is. I was very honest about my shlichus experience, which was like zero, and also my expectations of what I thought I could deal with. And I sort of had like three caveats that I was like, you know, I'm totally in for being a shlicha and running a Chabad house, but there's sort of three things that I feel that I would need in my life. Number one, to live close enough to a Jewish school that our kids could go to school. Mm. Number two, to live close enough to a mikvah that it wouldn't be like this massive struggle every month. And the third one was that I had heard these horror stories of like, you know, we had to milk our own cow or there were times we didn't have any milk because we lived in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, that's just not me. Like, there's a lot I can deal with, but that sort of felt like a definition of too far. We live in Newcastle. We homeschool our children. (laughs) I drive two hours to a mikvah. And there can be weeks where there is no milk because (laughs) (laughs) the shipment hasn't come in. Oh, man. Okay, so everything you said you wouldn't do, you are now doing. (laughs) Everything you thought wouldn't happen. Pretty much. And I think the point of that is that it's not that I wouldn't. It was the thought that I couldn't. Yeah, okay. I get what you're saying. It was beyond what I could even fathom. I grew up in a from community. My parents owned a grocery store. Like there was no such thing as not having milk in the fridge. (laughs) Or anything else that you needed any other kosher food. Totally. Okay. So today we're going to discuss how your life experiences have shaped you. And you mentioned to me how the Mimer of Atatatava has really affected the way that you look at your life experiences. You have the personal struggles of living on Shilchas, which is Something that you say while laughing, and it's like a joyful choice that, of course, comes with so many intense struggles, but was something that you actively chose. And then you also have experienced struggles that you definitely would have never chosen. And it wasn't like, oh, I thought I couldn't handle this. It was like, I'll give it back if I could. I mean, you never said that to me, but I'm saying like that level of struggle. So can you walk us through this idea of Kassas Lamar in the mimer of Atatitzava? And then we'll talk about your own life experiences and where you've experienced that crushing and how you've reacted to it. Amazing. So it's actually funny because this mimer is extremely famous, I guess, because it's the last mimer that the Rebbe gave to us. And to me, it's very personally, I guess, famous because like you said, it really is something that I have held with me for many, many years as this like power pack when like, I just feel like I can't do this. It is like the thing that I go to. The mime is really complex. There are a million incredible parts of it, but today I just want to 
touch on one drop of it. You know, you can have someone who's a Rebertson come in and teach the whole thing. <laughs> You're literally the I'm, definition of Rebertson, by the way. You are the definition of Rebertson. Oh gosh, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have problems if I'm the definition of Rebertson. I'm just going to touch on one drop of the whole mimer. And so in Parshish Tetzaveh, the Tyra talks about the Mishkan and all the Kalim in the Mishkan, right? And I love a good muscle. Like anything that's an analogy for something else, some, something where you can like compare and contrast and learn a lesson from that comparison just totally talks to me. If I ever wrote a safer, like I think that's what it'd be. Mashalim Shalmalki. And the idea that there's so much that we can learn from God's home for our own home really speaks to me just off the bat. You know, like I love my Instagram and obviously, you know, you follow home interior decorators and all these kind of things. You probably can't follow a better home designer than God, right? Like (laughs) if there's anyone we should be following and learning lessons from, it's how God designed his home. So when we talk about the Manaira, it uses very interesting wording. And I love the idea that Tyra is so precise. Tyra is so specific that if there is a word or a letter that is sort of seems a little bit off to us, there's something that we can learn from it. So when it talks about the Manaira and talks about the idea that it needs to be lit with olive oil, pure olive oil, the phrase that it uses is shemen zayis zach, pure olive oil, kosis lamar. And that's literally translated as crushed for the light. And it's just like an interesting way of saying it and also almost not necessary. Anyone who knows anything about olive oil knows that the way that you get it is by crushing it. It's almost like, why are we putting in brackets the recipe for olive oil? We know. Mm. (laughs) The recipe. And even if it was important to say that, like, you know, the olive oil is crushed, the idea of le ma'ar, just like grammatically, I'm not going to go into it because we're not a dick talk lesson, but grammatically, there could have been a better word to use to say, a better word would have been like la ha'ir, to illuminate, right? Like for the light just is an awkward expression. So by using the words kasus lamar, it's giving us this lesson for our lives that sometimes the crushing that we experience is for light. So through the crushing, we're experiencing or accessing something that we wouldn't be able to get to otherwise. And it's something that for me has been extremely enlightening, healing, motivating in many different scenarios. I remember in color classes before I got married, my color teacher was talking about the idea that you stand under the chuppah and you have a clean slate. And it's almost like not only is it your personal Yom Kippur of the year, but it's almost like this personal Yom Kippur of your life. Like everything that you've had until then is wiped clean. I was thrilled by that. (laughs) When I was 11, I was in grade five, my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer. So she was pretty much my age, which sort of freaks me out when I think about that. She was my age that I am now. And here she was facing a massive diagnosis. It was rare. It was aggressive. And throughout my teenagehood, I guess my teenage years were defined by the struggles that our family went through. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm an optimistic person. I'm a strong person. I'm like half of what my mom is. Like she is an incredible person. She is a fighter. She's amazing. But still, cancer's huge. And I think that at that defining moment in my life, it was even more impactful than other times of life, I guess. My brothers who were younger, it affected them differently. My brother who's older affected him differently. I'm the only daughter. There's four boys and me. There was just lots that defined my life from then on in the context of a huge struggle. And we had a beautiful childhood. I don't look back at my teenage years and be like, oh, that was the worst. But it definitely was a situation of me having to grow up really fast, me feeling that resilience was like the only, you know, I guess I learned about resilience from a very young age. The day of my bus mitzvah, my mother was in hospital. 
So we had sort of made a plan that, you know, a couple months later, once she was out, we would do a party. And two of my beautiful friends' mothers were like, we can't let Malky's bus mitzvah go without, you know, doing something. They threw a surprise party and my mom actually came, like snuck out of hospital for a couple of hours to come. And it was just, I grew up really fast. And there was a lot of resilience and a lot of, wow, you're so brave and you must be so strong. And by the time I got to getting married, I was like, all right, yes, I'm so strong. I've learned my lessons. I've done my thing. I'm ready to move on. And I think that standing under the chuppah, I really had this moment of like, God, you've tested me. You've thrown me under the bus a whole lot of times, you know, like with cancer, it's never just once. My mom went through multiple secondary brain cancers and heart failure and all kinds of things, which are just horrific. And she just kept trucking. And as a family, we kept trucking. But here I was starting a new chapter in my life. And I was like, I am ready. Slate clean. Learned my lesson. Lessons, you know, my toolbox is full. So... I guess as an older teenager and as a emerging adult, that was the first time that I really came across this idea of Casas Lamar. I think a lot of my teenage years were in survival mode, like, let's just keep going, Mm. (laughs) I guess. Like, let's literally, let's keep living. I had little brothers that I basically felt obliged to mother, even though if I didn't, someone else would have, but I felt that responsibility. And then I left home and all of a sudden, all of this like sort of came crashing down on me. Like, what was that? And trying to make sense of that. And I guess, Mm. you know, that that post-traumatic reactions of processing it. I remember I was in seminary and my father called me and I was having a really hard time. And I was, (laughs) there was one phone back in the day before we had our cell phones. There was one phone in the kitchen Mm. and calling Australia wasn't cheap. So. He had called on the one phone in our dorm and I was just sitting on the floor, like wrapped up in a blanket, bawling my eyes out. And the rest of my dorm mates are sort of tiptoeing around me. And that I think is the first time that I was introduced to this topic. And he said to me, there is a light that is created through the crushing. No one chooses this and no one wants this and no one wants to have to experience soul crushing challenges. But if you have gone through it, know that there is a light that you now have access to, that you've tapped into. And that was the beginning of my healing because I knew that I had gained insight. I knew that I had gained resilience through these experiences that no one would ever choose. I think I was angry and I think I was frustrated because Here I was so young with so much baggage on my back. And this idea that Casas Lamar really reframed that as, it's not baggage, it's not a bag of rocks, it's Mm. wings. Here I have grown wings that will allow me to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise or that other people don't have. And I don't think it has to apply to such intense stories. I don't think that people listening to this should be like, oh, I hope one day I have such crushing things because I want those wings. I think that sometimes, and I find this that sometimes it's the small things that are harder to deal with than the big things. When you're faced with this massive challenge, you put on your big boy boots and you're like, okay, I can deal with this. But it's the small things that really get to you because they sort of like jump under the radar and get inside you. So Even things like, you know, in motherhood, there's so many things that I've found that I just, they're hard. Life as an adult is hard. My kids often, I guess, complain that they don't get to make the decisions and they don't get to be the adult. And I often just say to my husband, they don't realize (laughs) being an adult isn't as fun as it looks. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of perks, but There are a lot of challenges that we face and they don't have to be soul crushing. They can just be challenging. And knowing that these challenges are allowing us to access something deeper that we wouldn't necessarily have otherwise, I think gives me strength. 
And so what's interesting now that I've gone like completely off the side of the mimer, if I just pull back for one second, the rabbi talks about the idea that, you know, in Golos, the Jews are in exile and we're being crushed. And that crushing, that Maseris Nefesh, it unlocks a door to the source of the light. So it automatically connects us to a level of our neshama that we wouldn't otherwise necessarily have access to. And that's how we explain, you know, people who literally gave up their lives throughout history for their Judaism. But what I think is the most fascinating is this almost like comment, almost this like side comment in the Mimer, which mentions the idea that these same people who lived in Russia or lived under oppression and would be giving up their lives for their Judaism, moved to America and assimilated. And I just find that so fascinating. It's not like, well, there are some people who do this and some people who do that. No, the same person in certain situations is ready to give up their life, but without that crushing, without that pressure, they don't have access to those tools. And and the Mimer continues and goes on and says, we live in a world where there isn't that same soul-crushing Jewish persecution. Thank God. But how do we still access the tools? And so like I was saying before, you know, you, you don't have to have some crazy sub-story to access these tools. There are other ways to get to it, but unfortunately, that's not my story. My story is the crushing to get the wings. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're here today. Yeah. I have to say, I loved how you said, I have baggage, but it's not a bag of rocks. When we think of baggage, that's something that's heavier or something that takes more energy to carry. Asking like, what is that weight? What is that load? Like, yes, it is heavy. And yes, there is a weight, but is it something that can propel me forward or is it something that is just meaningless and weighs me down and like serves no purpose? Hmm. And also just remarking that I think we always make disclaimers whenever we're sharing our story of like the opposite of the story, because it's like, and of course, if you didn't struggle, then like you can reach the <laughs> exact same conclusion that I did. But you know, th- Maybe this it's is, not true. <laughs> but like, this is your experience you're speaking to those challenges. And many people have experienced challenges in their life. Like you said, it doesn't have to be soul crushing to be a challenge Mm. and to be a weight. And I think that everyone who's listening can take that for their own challenges. Absolutely. I want to add something interesting that, like you said, is this going to be something that's baggage that's weighing me down? Or is this something that I'll use as wings, tools? If you go back to the concept of the Manaira, I think something that I think about a lot is the idea that the olive oil is created by crushing, but the light is only created once you add a wick and light it. So the olive oil in itself, the crushing in itself has no value unless something's done with it. And in my personal life, I think about that a lot because it's not enough to say, well, I went through this and it was so hard and now I deserve everything or now I just want everything to come my way. There's still work. It's not a free ride of challenges have come my way. I somehow managed to make my way through them and now I'm ready for the rewards. Mm. There's still more to do. There's still putting that wick in. There is still lighting that fire. And in the Mimer, it talks about the idea that is where faith comes in. That's where connecting yourself to God and trusting that it's a partnership. That's where the light's going to really be illuminating. You know, I was saying how standing under the chuppah, I was like, all right, ready for a clean slate. There's a certain part of me that living on this shluchas life has created that mentality of, well, I deserve better. Not to sound like a brat, but, <laughs> but if I'm being really honest, there is a part of me that, that feels like I am choosing to live a life that is crushing. Mm. This is a, not a life that I'm familiar with. It's not a life that I have 
generations of support or generations of shlichus flowing through my bones. And so there is an element of me feeling like, look, I'm doing all that I can. I'm living on the edge, literally. And therefore, my cup is full. Like there's no room for any more challenges. Mm. I think that when we were faced with more challenge, that was probably the hardest thing to get through. So clean slate under the chuppah, married the man of my dreams. He's the most incredible husband. I would be nothing without him. And I'm not just saying that. Like, honestly, the strength that I have is propelled by the foundation of the life that we have built together. But still, challenges are hard. Every time I tell the story, I just think, who am I talking about? It's not denial. I'm sure like some psychologist can tell me there's a word for it, but I can't believe it's me. But let's dive in. So in 2019, we found out that we were having triplets and I (laughs) was flabbergasted. (laughs) I can imagine. Right? I think anyone would be. I do tend to be a magnet for drama. Like if something wacky is going to happen, it's going to be me. But this was like sort of taking it a little bit too far. At that point, we were still traveling around with Rara and we were like, even just the logistics of like triplets, we were just in over our heads in a beautiful way, in the most beautiful way. But from very early on, it was clear that it wasn't going to be very straightforward. We were pregnant with identical twin girls and a singleton baby boy. And I just could not believe my luck. Like I never thought that I would have twins or triplets, but if I ever did, like identical twin girls was like my dream, Mm. (laughs) you know, like matching outfits and just, oh, so cute. There's no reason to hang on to something like that, but I don't know. In the design of your life, the identical twin girls was there, probably because I have no sisters. Yeah. This idea of having like inbuilt besties, adorable. It is sweet. Yeah. Long story short, the girls didn't survive and our son was born at 24 weeks, which is, it's hard to describe how like barely alive that is. It is half a pregnancy, essentially. And it was just layer upon layer upon layer of challenge being thrown in our face. At first, they were just worried, you know, carrying a triplet pregnancy is crazy. Then one of the baby girls wasn't growing as much as she should have. And they were concerned about this, concerned about that. The anxiety and the medical concerns and the level of complexity to the pregnancy just kept going up and up and up. I mean, even nowadays when I meet a doctor, they're fascinated because you don't hear of these things. One of our daughters passed in utero at 17 weeks. She was not getting enough of the shared blood flow. It's called twin to twin transfusion syndrome. We thought that that loss was going to be the extent of it. And even just that, I mean, trying to sort of mourn a miscarriage while you're still pregnant with twins, like how do you even put your head around that? But then my waters broke at 21 weeks and viability in Australia is defined by 23 weeks. So before 23 weeks, they won't do anything to save a child. Yeah. And I guess like there has to be a cutoff that's, I don't know, I'm not going to defend them actually. (laughs) There's an amazing movement called 22 Matters. It's a worldwide movement to encourage people to advocate for themselves when their babies are born at 22 weeks because they can survive. Our daughter, Basia, our second daughter, was born on 22 weeks. It was traumatic. The midwives didn't believe me that I was in labor, even though I was like, I've done this before. I know what contractions feel like. She was like, oh no, love, I'm palpating your stomach, can't feel any contractions. And so in the middle of the night, I got up and she was born. We were on our own and she was alive, No, but there was sort of nothing to do. And that was just this whole new level of what? 
what is going on? Like, it's just so, like, you can't make these stories up. That whole day is a blur of excruciating grief with like this crazy need to be present and practical because there was another child still inside of me. So here I was birthing a child who is passing away in my arms, but at the same time worrying like the other baby inside of me is fine. So what are we doing to make sure that stays that way? I'm so blessed to have doctors who A, knew what they were doing and B, had the hands of God to make it work. They did this small surgery where they sort of retie the umbilical cord and let it, oh gosh, I don't, I don't even know how to explain this. So they cut the umbilical cord of the baby, our baby girl. She was buried that day and the umbilical cord sort of just receded back into my uterus. And I sat for another 17 days wow. pregnant. Wow. Yeah. And that was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And I remember just being like, you want me to pray? It's Yom Kippur. You want me to sit and open my mouth? Like after what I've just been through, Rosh Hashanah, our daughter was born Matzah Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah was this beautiful experience, spiritual. I had all this time to pray and say to heal him and, and really focus, which I had two kids at home. I hadn't done that in a while. We finished Rosh Hashanah feeling really ready. I was like, I've done my bit. God has heard me. I felt very calm for the first time in a long time. I knew it'd all be fine. And a few hours later, I started feeling contractions. So when it came to Yom Kippur, and I write on my Instagram, which I'm so grateful for because I love to go back and read those things and know that, like, you sort of see the journey. I'm very grateful for my lovelies for giving me the platform. You know, they show up and read it, so I keep writing. Yom Kippur came, and I was just like, we've gone too far here. I was angry. And I think that's where this idea of The crushing of the olives creates the olive oil, but what creates the light? And I think that light was sort of lit when through mountains of tears, I opened my machser and said a couple of words. I mean, I half-heartedly, like I was, I was going through the motions and I knew that. And I knew that God knew that too, but I just felt like no one expects any more than that. I think that's sort of the outlook that I've taken from that day on. It's tiny steps. To light a flame, you don't need a massive bonfire. You need to just strike a match. You need a tiny spark. But when you have that crushing, in my case, that crushing loss, that spark will take off like nothing else. It doesn't have to be this massive show of faith that we might feel like we have to define it as. It's just one more step. And when our Mei was born, he looked like a skinned rat. Like he was tiny. You know how our skin is, I guess, dry. Like he was so early, his skin hadn't even fully formed. Like he was sticky. He was literally wow. half-baked. He was par-baked. Wow. And to sit there every day and wonder, not only will he make it, but is he suffering? And what can I do? You know, that instinct as a mother to protect your child and there's literally nothing you can do. And the things that you're trying to do are actually making it worse. You know, like I remember in the first few days wanting to constantly touch him and like reassure him that I was there. And the nurses were like, when you touch him, it is painful. Wow. Because his nerves are so raw no stroking, no padding. Like if you want to apply some pressure, fine. But just every maternal instinct was wrong in that moment. And again, I didn't turn it into a tzaddikus, you know, as my son sat in the NICU, I wasn't saying to heal him and davening. And I'm just being honest, that wasn't my experience. And, and kudos to people who can do that. But it was the tiny things. It was the still showing up to light Shabbos candles. Like I remember one week, it was a really bad week. And we 
came home just before Shabbos and they called us back and they said like, you should probably be here because like, we don't know if he'll make the weekend. Oh my God. And lighting candles that week was a struggle. And it feels weird to say that because I grew up in a from house. It was never even a question, you know, like get out of the shower if you're late, whatever, run quick, you know, light candles. Here I was, there was, no, there was nothing stopping me from lighting candles except myself. I was mad. I was so broken. I was like, I'm too crushed. Is there a point where I'm too crushed? Like there's nothing left of me. And still that tiny action, it, I think that's where the ma'ar, that's where the illumination comes. I have no idea how we got here, but here we are. <laughs> I can't talk. Like I would if I could, but I'm just like, I'm like, I can't talk. Mm. This line really stood out to me when you said, the crushing creates the oil, but what creates the light? And that in the mimer, the Rebbe talks about the act of faith mm. and how you said that like, even just the smallest act of faith, like even if it isn't an action, but even just still turning to Hashem. Yeah. Because I'm like, what does create the light? Like, I love that question to turn back to myself. Like, what does create the light? Mm. You know, the crushing creates the oil, but what creates the light? Mm. And you describing, like, having that extreme resistance to lighting Shabbos candles or to opening up the machsar. Mm. And not necessarily doing it with great joy, but just still turning to God in that situation. That's breathtaking to me. Because it's so raw. Yeah. And I think it definitely is a journey. As humans, we like to be in control. I especially <laughs> enjoy being in control and very much do not enjoy the chaos of like, I don't know what's going on, which is most of my life. So I guess <laughs> that's my mission here in this world to <laughs> learn to let go of control. But a couple of weeks ago, we were teaching in our Hebrew school about the days of creation and about how God created the world. And in our newsletter, I like to put a lit idea. So learn it together. So when the kids go home, like here's an idea of something that you can discuss around the table that will sort of maybe bring out something that they've learned. And the question that I wrote that week was, what would you do differently? If you were in charge, if you created the world, what would you do differently? And I think that has been a very big process in my life of accepting the fact that God knows what he's doing. And I think, I think perhaps that this is the light, taking the oil, taking that crushing moment and trusting that if I was God, I would do the exact same thing because he knows what he's doing. And together with that, obviously there's this idea that we can change our reality. The idea of brachis, you know, drawing down a, a new reality. You know, my husband loves to say, you have every right to yell at God and say, you're kol yachal. You have infinite ability to do anything. So whatever you're trying to do, please do it differently. <laughs> and that's true. But also when you've gone through something, trusting that this makes sense. I don't get it. And I refuse to even try to get it. I'm not going to do the whole, like, when you have lemons, make lemonade. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this experience. But I am going to trust that something is going on here beyond what I can understand and beyond what I can connect to. And that the kosis is lemar. It is allowing me to access a part of my soul that the door would be closed to otherwise. I said I love Mashalim, right? So in Australia, we have a lot of bushfires. And it's devastating. When the bushfires are over and you drive through these areas, like the amount of devastation and the amount of damage that's done is just unbelievable. But at the same time, there are native Australian eucalyptus trees that the only way that they can reproduce, like the only way that their seeds can open is through extreme heat. And you see that after the fires, you think nothing will ever live again. It is scorched to the ground. And then you start seeing these little sprouts coming up. And you see that in nature, this happens. This happens that there needs to be a certain amount of devastation in order for new growth to exist. And 
in my house, I have a eight-year-old and a six-year-old who at the moment love to say, it's not fair. Everything's (laughs) not fair. And the philosophical part of me questions that in my mind, obviously, you know, they're a little bit too young to have this conversation, but what does it mean? It's not fair. It's not fair actually means I don't agree with this. Mm. Or in my understanding of the universe, this doesn't align. So (laughs) we had this crazy triplet story, right? And after that, I was like, now we're really done, right? So we had that clean slate under the chuppah and like, okay, fine. So we had to sneak in a little bit more drama, but now we're really done. We're finished. Amazing, crazy story. Learned my lessons. Let's move on. A few months after May May came out of hospital, he was in hospital for five months. I think it was 121 days. Wow. A few months later, we moved to Newcastle and everyone was mm-hmm. like, you're mad. You've just gone through so much. And we were like, we are ready to just start living again. To me, that was it. Like I said before, there's a certain amount of entitlement that I held, especially once we moved to Newcastle. Here I am living on the edge. I've done that whole triplet thing. I'm done. We're ready to move on. And our rainbow baby, we found out we were pregnant. May May would have been two, maybe one and a half. And it was a whole crazy story. It was during COVID. We were locked out of the mikvahs that were anywhere accessible. I was back in Russia where like, you know, there was nowhere to use a mikvah. Crazy story. Beautiful ending. I had to use the ocean. And that month we got pregnant and it was just so lovely. And then he died in utero at 22 weeks. Oh my God. Completely unrelated to the whole triplet drama. Completely random. Like, thank God I know the reason for it because I think otherwise I would never be able to get past it if it was unexplained. It was clear what had happened, but it was completely random, like a freak accident. And obviously, you know, after our triplet pregnancy, I was high risk. I was very anxious We finally got to the point where I was starting to feel the baby move. I was starting to like finally breathe a little bit, finally lean into this idea of like, okay, crazy things happen, but now we're fine. And then I just wasn't feeling the baby move. And I, I guess, leaned into my instinct and the midwives were like, oh, doll, you're fine. You know, like often at 22 weeks, you're not going to feel the baby move. And I was like, I know something's wrong. And he was dead. Literally one day. Everything was fine. He was growing perfectly. And then his heart just stopped. And that's when I really came to the, it's not fair. I was just done. How much do you want to push me, God? At what point are we just ready to say enough? And I think that it's only been since then. So (laughs) our son, We called him Matis Yaho because he was born on the first night of Hanukkah, 2021. But I call him Mac, Matis Yaho Maccabi. And it was only after he was born that I really started this philosophical journey in my mind of what does it mean that it's not fair? What is this anger inside of me that like, I don't deserve this. I'm on schlichus. I'm doing everything that I can to make the world a better place. And therefore, I'm untouchable. That's not true. The truth is that there is a crushing that's being taken place. And I can either leave it as oil in a jar, or I can get over the it's not fair and light that wick and see where that takes me. And see where that takes us and see where that takes the world. And like, what a waste of that precious olive oil to just leave it in a jar to ferment in the back of my closet, you know, to just close it up in my heart and be like, I'm done. This is too much. And so people will say to me all the time, like, you know, you're so inspiring. You're so strong. I mean, I can understand why they say that or why they see that, but To me, it's like I have just unlocked a new 
door to tools of my soul that may have never otherwise been access to. So why would I just stand there staring at them? Like, what can I do with this? And I think that's the difference between toxic positivity, you know, the lemon to lemonade. This isn't lemon to lemonade. This is creating something completely new. This is olive oil that's being lit. This is taking an entire new approach to who I was because now there's a level of me that's connected to infinite light that I didn't have beforehand. So it's not that like, oh, Malky's so strong and she's chosen to like look at this challenge and do something good with it and still smile or whatever it is. No, there's a new level of ability within me. I didn't create it. The door was open to me, but what am I doing once that door has opened? Where am I going with it? What am I utilizing that for? That's my journey. That's probably where I would take a compliment of, wow, you've come so far. When you said that about lemon to lemonade versus olive oil to fire, I was thinking about how lemonade is something sweet that's made out of something sour. But Mm. fire is not sweet or even Mm. always pleasant. It's powerful. It illuminates. It cleanses. It shows the way for other people. But it's not sweet. And it doesn't have to be sweet to be raging and to be illuminating and to make such a difference. Amazing. Oh, I love how you put that. You're the muscle. It's such a good muscle. And it's so (laughs) true. You know, I think that science is finally sort of catching up with Hasidus and with Tyra. And I don't know where I would be without Hasidus because how do you make sense of all of this? I used to complain to my husband that I think I'm just going to roll down the road of Gehenna in this world to cleanse my soul for the world to come. Maybe there's some like stain on my soul that I have to cleanse through all this negativity. That was a very low point. (laughs) That was a point in my journey of trying to make sense with this where I was like, I just, I can't like, maybe I'm just a bad person. (laughs) maybe this is just all coming to me and like I don't see it and that's why it keeps coming like my eyes are blind to something wrong Mm. thankfully that was a very short stage because I think the power of Hasidus is the fact that we can be human we should be human and Hasidus will give us that insight into the spirituality of that humanness and to understand enough of it that we can see how to grow past it rather than just sticking in the reality part of it. So am I being unrealistic? Absolutely. It doesn't make sense that you can tell a story about your baby's dying and smile. Maybe that's also a coping mechanism, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> is that the Hasidus or is that Malky's personality? Yeah, that's, that's, Malky, that's Malky's personality. What's so interesting is that science is finally sort of catching up with Hasidus Mm. and there's this new phenomenon that they're very excited about called post-traumatic growth. And it's like this fascinating new scientific area of research where they're like, one second, we're so used to talking about post-traumatic stress and all this disordered thinking and feeling that happens after people go through something traumatic. But it seems to be that some people actually grow from the experience and they're just fascinated by the idea that some people find new meaning in their life or they connect to more spirituality or they go on to do crazy things with their life that they would never have otherwise. And I think we see that so much with social media, these people who probably a couple of decades ago would have been looked down upon as just like invalids, are multi-billion dollar motivational speakers, right? Someone who's lost both their arms and both their legs. And like, they're not stuck in a home for disabled people. They are touring the world, speaking about the idea that anyone can do anything, whatever it is. And like, that's Hasidus. Post-traumatic growth 
is Casas Lamar. It's leaning into this idea that yes, the trauma is there. And I think this is so important to say. The phrasing in the Tyra, it doesn't skip over the Casas. It mm. specifically says the crushing in order to illuminate. There's no skipping past the crushing. There's no sugarcoating it and being like, oh yeah, but look what's come from it. Part of the experience is feeling that crush, understanding that as a human, we feel. We have to go through the process. It can't be rushed. Faith is not being like, oh, but this is what Hashem wanted. So like, I'm not even grieving because like, it's fine. My babies are safe up in heaven. I know they are, but also I'm a human mother and I need to grieve. First, the crushing has to happen. And then you can light it up. If you're not allowing one part of the process, the rest of the process can't happen. I love how you pinpointed the order. Mm. And as people watching someone go through something difficult, it's so easy to want to fix it. It's a natural instinct to want to just to make it better and to say comments and to just do something, but there's nothing to do. So say something that will make it better. That's not our job. Our job is not to take away the pain. Our job is to sit there in the pain, sit with the pain, say, this is so crushingly painful. There is nothing I can do except be here for you. And I am so blessed to have some friends who are so good at that. I don't understand how they have that insight because I've been through this stuff and still struggle when I speak to people who are going through something similar because I'm like, I don't know what to say and I'm scared to put my foot in it. But if you take one thing from this whole conversation, it's pain is not scary. It hurts, but it's part of the process. Don't try to take away from the crushing. The crushing is happening. You're not helping by trying to take it away. Yes, things can be painful. And yes, things can be really hard to watch. And I think sometimes that it's harder to stand by and watch someone suffer than the person who's suffering themselves. I don't know why it's so hard to watch somebody else suffer. But you're not there to take away the suffering because you can't. You're there to stand in that circle of suffering and just be there. I'm so moved by everything that you shared and just also how you highlighted. I don't like using the word beauty in mm. relation to pain, but mm. how you highlighted the value. Value. Maybe the, mm. or even like it is not inherently bad when we experience pain in our own lives. And like, I look at you and, and I'm like, that's horrible. And you should know only revealed good and no one should experience that. Amen. Thank you. And I also see that the way that you speak about your own pain that is really encouraging to me is that like, it's not something you have to flee from. It's not mm. something that needs to be diminished or erased. Like it is the most painful thing in the world and it is the most crushing thing in the world. Mm. And it makes me look at this phrase of Casas Lamar in a new light, which is it's validating the crushing. Like the crushing is a crushing. Yes. And Lamar. And you can mm -hmm. then, when you spoke about moving on Shulchus and feeling like I've been through so much or I've experienced so much that that final act of actually lighting the oil, like that's too much to ask. Yeah. And it's like, that's the only thing that's asked of you because you're not in control of anything else. And correct. That's a powerful invitation, I think. Absolutely is. It just actually just brings up when you have like pre-birth classes and they talk about, I don't even know if it's calm birth or hypnobirth, whatever it is. Mm. Whichever way you're going with your birth, often you'll discuss different sort of motivations to like keep you going when labor gets hard. And I think that a lot of women would say that the idea that at the end, this will all be worth it is really such a powerful thing, right? Like, yes, it's painful right now, but at the end, I'm going to have a baby and it's all going to be worth it. And it's so interesting. This idea of Kostas Lamar is not like that because you can't say that it's worth it. Yeah. That I'm going to go through all this pain and it's going to be worth it. 
but there is still a certain value. There is a certain light. There is a certain power that comes. Are we going to equate it with values of pain versus gain? No, but it is still a process. And when our son Mac died in utero, besides for it just being so horrifically shocking, we were faced with a really big dilemma because after our Maymay was born at 24 weeks, he was an emergency cesarean. And they told me that from then on, I have to have cesareans because a classical Caesars where they sort of slice you up and down. Sorry if it's a little bit graphic. And so contractions can pull at that, which is dangerous. The problem is we have a 22-weeker inside of me that needs to come out. Nobody wants to go through the recovery of a cesarean for a stillborn. But you wouldn't want to lose your uterus going through contractions either. So like, how are we getting the baby out? And what was decided at the end was that they would give me a very low dose of induction medication and see if they could sort of like gently induce labor. And if that didn't work, then they would have to do a cesarean. And through all the pain of that day, I remember feeling so blessed that it worked, that the induction medication worked. They gave me a tiny amount and it just got the ball rolling. But labor's hard. It's painful. It's all-consuming. And I didn't have that motivation. I didn't have those motivational quotes of, this is all going to be worth it in the end. And, you know, imagine your baby coming to greet you and all these kind of beautiful labor chants that you would usually use. And if I heard someone else say this, I would roll my eyes and be like, oh my God, are you kidding me? But this was my experience. So I'm going to share it. And I'm going to tell you that sometimes when people say crazy things, it's actually true. (laughs) They're not making it up and they're not being weird. It's the fact is that sometimes we can sort of transcend our reality. And that is that as the labor got really intense, I didn't want to take medication. Like I didn't want to take pain medication to start with, even though they were like, look, nothing can harm your baby now. So we can give you like the strongest thing from the start if you want. But I wanted to feel the pain. I wanted to be a part of the process. But at at a certain point, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like the pain is excruciating. The emotional load of what is going on is just too much to carry along with the physical pain. And I was like, I'm ready for like something. So the nurse went off to get the anesthetist and I was like, no, 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 she needs to come back. Like the baby is coming. Like I'm ready to push. And in that moment, like I had Nigunim playing in the background because that's what I felt was calming in the moment. Not that I was feeling spiritual as the pain just sort of peaked as my body was like getting ready to push there was this understanding that I am returning this baby to God. It was almost like, sure, I can't say like, oh, this is worth it because in the end I'm going to meet my baby. But it was this thought process of there is a soul that is tied to this body and it's ready to be released. And by me going through this process, I'm allowing this release to happen. So it was almost this feeling of birthing a soul. Of course, there was a body and of course, the pain of releasing a child out of your body that never cries was just excruciating. But there was almost this euphoria of, I have achieved something. I have birthed a soul that is now free to fly high again. And that's not the, was the pain worth it? That was, and like I said, you know, like I'm quite a practical person. I'm not like a spiritual heebie-jeebie kind of like, I don't know. Those kind of experiences are not my go-to daily feelings. But I think that that moment really, really highlighted for me, Kostas Lamar. I was accessing a place That was beyond who I am as a human, but as a human. 
right? Like, is there anything more human than going through labor and birthing a child that you have grown inside of you? And in that moment, accessing a place that is so spiritual and so holy. And I think that's kind of cool that we can do that. We're not stuck in this physical reality of we're just mere humans. We have this amazing power. And that's my favorite part of being a human and being a woman and learning Hasidus, all of that together. I love the fact that we are so powerful and like it's never ending. Just keep discovering new things. I don't even want to, like, usually I love to reflect back what I heard, but anything that you shared, I cringe to even think about (laughs) it coming out of my own mouth. No, because for you, it comes from such a real experience. I think it's very different to speak about it as an intellectual idea and to speak about it from a place of experience, which nobody can argue with your actual experience of this process and what you learn from it and what you can teach us about it. Mm. And that's why I want to ask you for each of us in our own experiences of crushing big and small, how can we access that ability to turn it into a source of light? It's like the biggest question in the world. I think what I've learned through all of this is how much power we have inside of us to trust what we have inside of us. You know, so often we're looking for the supports. And of course, a support system is important. But knowing that inside of you is so much strength and so much power and so much light, right? Like you have created the oil. The crushing is the hardest part. You also have the spark. And it's believing in yourself, And trusting in yourself, yes, this is so hard, but I can keep going. I think that, especially as a kid, it used to rub me so much the wrong way when people would say, God only gives you what you can handle. And that used to really upset me because I felt like it was almost like a punishment. I'm a resilient, strong person. And because of that, I'm the one that gets to deal with my mom having cancer when I'm 11 years old. Yeah. So I'll be the weak one. Like, why would I want to be the strong one? And it's only really recently, I think I actually heard it on the Human and Holy podcast. I think someone mentioned it in one of your episodes. That's not the way the phrase goes. What actually is happening is that when God presents you with this massive brick wall in front of you that you feel like, I will never get over this. I will never get through this. I'm just stuck. Know that somewhere inside of you, from the time you were born, there is a toolbox or a map or a ladder that is already inside of you to climb this wall. And you've never had to look for it because you never had to need it, but it is there. And I think that's just a totally different perspective to like, well, you have the strength, so just get over it. And I think that knowing that, believing that, and accessing that as a person is so powerful. And it's true. It's not like one of these, you know, manifesting heebie-jeebie things. (laughs) God created us with incredible strength. It's in there. Yeah. Malky, thank you so much. I'm really grateful to you for sharing not just your story, but your experience, and also in a way that felt like you let us in. I really felt that. And thank you. I've been following you on Instagram for a long time. And yet you're like even more phenomenal in person. Just you're such a light full of so much wisdom. And I'm really grateful to you for sharing this with us and with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kasis Lama'ar. Crushed for illumination. When we survive the crushing, when God sends us down a path we would have never chosen, and we are left with our own personal jug of pure olive oil, our hard-earned lessons and strengths, can we put a wick in and let it 
burn? Can we allow our faith to seep into the oil to transform our challenges into a source of light? Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha lechaberet nishmati tamidinecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. (laughs) 